know the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast. This week, we enter a new year, and wow. A lot of people are making memes and videos saying that they use their seven-day trial of 2021 and they might be like, cancel it and give me my money back. But lots going on. People highly upset. Tensions are high, but we have to stay the course. We all have opinions and those opinions are attached to some really strong feelings. Um, There's been a division in the U.S. and We've seen some of those feelings explode in anger and frustration this past week. We haven't experienced anything quite like this in the U.S., and it's a little scary, but I know things like this have occurred in other parts of the world, and it's no doubt going to continue until it gets resolved. We have to learn that Things take place all the time that frustrate us and may even seem unfair to us and even seem unjust. Or some people feel like we're taking the wrong direction. Um, And we talk about the founding of this country and what democracy means and the issue of fairness and voting and voter fraud and, and what it comes down to is really having a voice. I want my voice to be heard and I want my vote to count. And that's something that's near and dear to every citizen of every country. They want their voice heard and they want their vote to count. When the people feel wronged, they want you to hear their collective voice. They wanna make sure their voice is heard and their power is felt. But if you've suffered for hundreds of years without a substantial or significant voice, what would happen then? What if you were stripped of your culture, your society as you knew it decimated, your children forced into boarding schools or residential programs? And what if your women were persistently missing and murdered? And then regularly and commonly, there was no follow-up on what happened. They were living in your home as your mother, your sister, your aunt, your friend, your wife, and now they're just gone, gone, and no one is following up. The local police aren't filing reports in some cases. In other cases, reports get filed, but there's no follow-up to that. In some cases, someone pursues the case for a little while, but the family doesn't hear anything And over time, it goes away. And what if this happened on a regular basis? And what if you were so oppressed that there were no marches going on on your behalf? What if your population was so devastated by the loss of so many women's lives, children without moms, 
that your first course of action is just to take the time to find out what is happening. This week, we begin a series of three podcasts. We explore the little known issue of missing and murdered indigenous women. For this series, I interviewed four women who are indigenous rights activists. My guests include U.S. State Senator-elect Mary Kunesh Podine. She's the first ever Native American woman to be elected to the state Senate. Christina Stark, who's an author and researcher in the U.S. We have Mel Compton from Canada, who was a frontline worker and is now a curriculum developer. And Marissa Kokoros, who is an author of the book Relentless Resilience and the director of Aura Freedom. These amazing women have been instrumental in shining a light on the issue of missing and murdered indigenous women or MMIW in both the US and Canada. I'm so excited to bring this series to you. It's one of the most powerful episodes that I think I've done to date. So I have Lisa Belton with me to discuss what this series, what's going to happen in this series, and just to process it along with you. So welcome, Lisa. Thank you. And I have to say, powerful is definitely an accurate description for for this series. Uh, These women are truly rock stars. Each guest has done such valuable work in the field of Indigenous rights. And I'm so excited to be exploring this issue for the next three weeks. And to be honest, that excitement is also partnered with uh, some feelings of deep rage and, and I'm feeling highly upset, you know, learning about this issue. And I think everyone will share similar feelings. Um, the lack of representation of missing and murdered indigenous women, um, especially in the mainstream media is just mind blowing to me. I know, I know rage is, um, an accurate word. MMIW is a social justice issue that doesn't receive the attention that it should. Not only do Indigenous women experience violence at higher rates than others, but in Canada, Indigenous women make up only 4% of the population, but are 55% of human trafficking victims. Right. And the rates in which Indigenous women in both the U.S. and Canada are exploited are obviously staggering. And as one guest this week points out, uh, the number the numbers are likely higher as indigenous women are often misidentified as being, you know, different races, different ethnicities. Um, What is just as important as the numbers though, is the reasons why this crisis is happening. Um, I learned a great deal from our guests about the history of oppression that has occurred from colonization to residential and boarding schools and just assault after assault on our indigenous communities. I know each of our guests this week has been really instrumental in organizing communities, advocating for justice, collecting data and testimonies, developing task forces, and writing reports all in an effort to attain justice for the women who are missing or who have been murdered, justice for their families, and justice for their communities. I'm so proud of this series on MMIW, and I I'm honored to have my social justice sisters as guests for this series. 
And I know you'll find this series as valuable as I did. So without further ado, my interview with these four badass women. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast. Today, we have four powerhouse women to talk about missing and murdered Indigenous women. And I'm so fortunate, and this took a little while to really put together and organize, but I'm so, so happy to be able to bring these four women um, to the mic. The first one is Mary Kunesh. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Uh, Kunesh. Okay, Mary Kunesh. And Mary is a state representative in Minnesota, and she has just been elected, newly elected to the state Senate. And you you don't even understand, this is the first time a Native woman has been elected to the Senate. And she also authored uh, an amazing report that she's going to talk about in the podcast. We also have Mel Compton. She was a frontline worker, and now she's a curriculum developer. Uh, Marissa Kokoros, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes, you are. All right. So Marissa has been on the podcast before. She's the author of Relentless Resilience. She's an activist, and she's also the executive director of Aura Freedom. Um, And then we have Christine Stark. And Christine Stark is an author and researcher, and she's been on the podcast previously as well. Now, do I understand that all of you on the podcast today are Native women? I am not. So three out of the four are Native women. What's your background, Marissa? My parents are both immigrants. My mother is from Sicily, Italy, and my father was born in Sparta, Greece. And they were both um, yeah, immigrants here as, as children. They came here as youth. And um, I'm here as an you know, a supporter of Indigenous rights and Indigenous women's rights. And as someone who, um, who wants to walk with my Indigenous sisters in Canada and raise their voices and be here um, as support. And it's part of a, a big part of the work that I do, but we can talk about that later. So yeah, no, I'm not. And I, I want that to be known, of course. And State Senator Mary, um, what's your background? Uh, my family's from Standing Rock South, in South Dakota. My grandfather was uh, born there and came to the Twin Cities as a young, uh, a young man and um, relocated here to Minnesota. Okay. And uh, what is your native ethnicity? Is that how you oh, ask it? I would say Standing Rock, Lakota, Lakota Sioux. Awesome. What about you, Mel? I'm Mi'kmaq from the Maritime Provinces of Canada, so primarily Newfoundland and Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my mom's side is not Indigenous, and she's mixed Scottish-Irish. Okay. All right. And what about um, you, <clears throat> Christine? Uh, I'm uh, Anishinaabe and Cherokee. All right. Awesome. Let's get into it. So tell us, give us an overview, you know, we have two perspectives going on, one from the U.S. and one from Canada. And um, could you give us an overview, Marissa, about what is happening in terms of missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada? Yeah. So, I mean, 
Indigenous women and, and girls and two-spirit peoples have been murdered and have gone missing with little or no support from the Canadian government for centuries. And so in 2015, so five years ago, yeah, five years ago now, the government of Canada, the federal government, finally announced uh, a national inquiry into the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women and, and girls and two-spirit folks. And it was like a, a landmark move for Indigenous rights and justice. And then um, the, the, the truth-gathering process started. Mm-hmm. Um, so from August 2016 to December 2018, stories were gathered, data, information, stories, um, families gave their testimony, um, elders, grandmothers, and community members were called in to support the families during this time because, um, as I'm sure Mel will, will, will tell you, the, you know, it was a long and painful process. These were families who've been grieving for years with no justice. And so they gave accounts of their missing and murdered loved ones and detailed uh, quite frankly, the negligence of Canadian leadership. And these accounts are public information, so you can view them online. So what what do you mean when you say and two-spirit people? Um, so there's many definitions from what I have learned from my colleagues. And I'll, maybe Mel can give a little bit more perspective there. But it can be a general term. It's often used as a general term for... Um, peoples who embody both uh, male and female spirits and um, attributes. So it could mean um, gay or queer, it could mean trans, it could mean non-binary. And so when we say missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, we also in Canada include two-spirit peoples because there's also been a lot of violence against two-spirit peoples here in Canada and I'm sure in the U.S. as well. Yeah, so for the most part, in in what we identify, the easiest way to say is the embodiment of both genders, but it's also a little bit more than that. It's to say that maybe they're not necessarily identifying with any gender and they are focused specifically on being Mm -hmm. non-binary. It's hard to sort of translate into the English language because many of our Indigenous languages don't have gendered pronouns. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have he or she. We have we speak in they, um, and so to, to sort of give a direct translation is a little bit hard. Um, but that's the general definition. Okay, and Marissa, when you say they gave their testimonies, to whom did they give their testimonies? Um, they were recorded. They they gave them to the task force, I believe, and the folks that were collecting the testimony and working on the um, on the report. So there was a, I guess they were the committee that was put together, right, Mel? Um, what's the official name? It was a committee or a task force. And so there were folks across Canada collecting this information. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the gathering process went on for two years. And I bet you it could have gone on for longer. I bet you And could that have. report, uh, Mel, when did that report come out, if you can remember? I believe the official report was last year, wasn't it? Yeah. I'm not, I'm not very good with dates. <laughs> um, but I think even too, like through the process of uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they also were able to gather stories um, through that process as well. Um, the TRC focused a lot on residential schools 
Um, but through the residential school process, we also know that there were a lot of children that never made it home. There was a lot of abuse that took place. And that's also a part of MMIW. And so more stories have come out through the TRC. In the end, the, the, the National Inquiry here in Canada produced a final report that was over a thousand pages long. I mean, even the summary is hundreds of pages long. And they concluded that the violence experienced by Indigenous women and girls amounts to genocide. And there was a recognition of that um, across Canada. And we also recognize that there's an ongoing genocide of Indigenous peoples in Canada that occurs to this day. And I call it Canada's diplomatic genocide um, in my report. And it, you know, throughout be, from the foster care system to, um, yes, residential schools to the 60s scoop to human trafficking across the board, there's an ongoing genocide that happens today. And in Canada, you had um, statistic that, you know, women make up maybe Indigenous women maybe make up 4% of the population, but at least 55% of human trafficking victims. So, and that's just one way that you're talking about genocide. I'm going to come back and, and find out more about the foster care system, residential schools, but what about the overall picture in the U.S.? Well, we know that, um, that, uh, our Native women experience violence and murder at higher rates than any other population um, in the United States. And that's across the United States. Um, and so, uh, you know, and that's one of the things that spurred us here in Minnesota to do that because we had been hearing about um, these reports for forever and ever um, you know, antidotally, but not so much, uh, you know, we just didn't have the numbers or the the data that uh, so many people want us to have in order to uh, make this like a legitimate concern. And so um, back uh, in 2017, when I began um, the process of creating a missing and murdered Indigenous Women's Task Force in uh, in Minnesota, it was really hard for me to find uh, information and data around um, around this nationally because nobody had begun to collect the data, or it was really poor collection, uh, especially in some of the larger states that have um, that have larger population of Native American women. But uh, in 2016, 5,717 cases of, and I'm going to use MMIWG, that means Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. Uh, so in, in, in this report from, um, from Seattle's Urban Indian Health Institute, they were able to quantify cases of MMIWG. So in 2016, 5,712 um, women and girls went missing, but only 116 of them were logged into the Department of Justice database. Wow. And through, yeah. And through their studies, 
um, they, they were able to identify that murder is the third leading cause of death among American Indian and Alaska Native women. And so this was, you know, once I read this, um, you know, on top of hearing the preliminary report uh, from Canada, uh, you know, it just was such a glaring, uh, a glaring message that we have not been doing our due diligence for our Native communities in yet another way. Um, mm -hmm. And so that is, uh, you know, those were the sort of things that happened um, that spurred us. and. It's, it was just a sad realization. I mean, we knew it, but we didn't have the numbers. And once we got just, you know, some of the initial numbers, uh, everybody was pretty horrified. Wow. And Christine, do you want to add any comments to that? Um, just to say that, you know, also with the, the numbers, then, you know, uh, the women uh, and girls can also get misidentified. And so they get classified as a different race and not native. So, you know, um, we're always uh, wanting to bring that forward as well, that we have these numbers that are totally horrific and they're um, most likely, you know, worse than that. Yeah. So, OK, I'm going to ask the obvious question. Why are we not outraged about what's happening to women and girls? Why is this not even being reported? That is, that's a rather complicated question. And I think it, it basically goes back to the very beginning of colonization uh, from the moment that uh, Columbus or any of the European uh, uh, men that arrived and stepped foot on this continent or any continent globally. I mean, this isn't a this isn't unique to North America, you know, the United States and Canada. This is a global, and I call it a pandemic. This is a global mm -hmm. pandemic uh, as the results, the direct results of colonism. So anytime uh, somebody, these men arrived on the shores of a new land, uh, their intent was to was to basically annihilate the population and take all the, the goods and all the, the minerals and all the riches from there, extract it and take it back to their country of origin. And uh, women have always been seen as disposable, use them, abuse them and throw them away. And that has been a mindset I feel uh, that has come down over the thousands of years, and we are now dealing with with that sort of mentality. Could I add to that? Yes, of course. So um, what Mary is talking about is called the Doctrine of Discovery, which is an international law that declared war on all non-Christians, and it approved the conquest of non-Christian people and territories. Um, so that's a, like, like Mary said, that's a global issue. It applied to Africa, it applied to you know, um, Australia and, and the other continents. Um, here on, you know, what we call Turtle Island or the Americas, um, Columbus, of course, landed in the Caribbean. And like Mary said, one of the first things that he did was to ship shiploads of the indigenous people um, back to the Mediterranean and sell them into slavery. And he made three uh, trips overall. And that included then them plundering not only uh, the land and trying to find gold um, and enslaving and murdering 
uh, the people that live there. But in his um, own journals, Columbus talked about a hundred castellanos, and I mispronounced that, are as easily obtained for a woman as for a farm. And it is very general. And there are plenty of dealers who go about looking for girls. Those nine to 10 years old are now in demand. Um, and so we see those papal bulls that were issued for the, Africa, for the African continent um, and for this continent. And here in the United States, uh, that set uh, legal precedence. And the last time um, that that uh, legal idea was um, uh, employed in our contemporary legal system was 2005. Wow. Oh, wow. Okay. Anything uh, you want to add to that, Marissa, in terms of from a Canadian perspective? I want to ask Mel if she wants to add something, because I know she has a lot to say there. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I think just to make it a point, um, because the same law, obviously, like Christine said, was a part of Canada as well. That was in 1472, I believe. Um, And then there was no law that was written that we had seen until about the 1700s. But in that process, like, I think we need to name it that women and girls were also part of that resource extraction. Um, They looked at women and girls as a resource that they could claim and up and control. Um, I think pre-Indian Act, um, it even stated as it was going and being, as this piece of legislation was being blended into the Indian Act, that the purpose was to dilute the bloodline and purposefully attack the women. And so they would take them and like Christine said, sell them into slavery and or put them in these um, homes where they would then be married off into non-Indigenous families and primarily settler communities to purposefully remove the bloodlines. So we can see that it's a direct target on procreation. They don't want our Indigenous communities to thrive and to grow. And so they specifically attack our women and girls. And I mean, you hear the age of 10, that is that is a child. That is, and I know obviously back then, like, um, the age of death was a lot lower. Um, But still, like, you are a child. And we couldn't even fathom a 10-year-old being taken into even the sex trade at that point. But it happens. And I think these are the the pieces that we don't get taught in school. These are the things that people don't recognize happen. And I think one of the important pieces to identify, like as Mary said, it's very hard and it's very complex to say what the actual reason why we can't be outraged. We are absolutely outraged, but we are also trying to protect and heal our communities as well. And there's always so much happening and so much um, of our communities that are being targeted. Um, while no DAPO was going on, my my band was going through a status removal process that should have never taken place. You also have our men that are being thrown through the Starlight Tours. You have other things that are happening in law and legislation that are being passed quickly without our communities even knowing until it gets to the Supreme Court and we're fighting and having to protest. Then you have other pipelines going in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't stop. And so for us, we are absolutely enraged, but it's so hard because we are so tired and so exhausted because there's so many things that are going on that we can't focus on just one thing. So we're stretched thin. 
it's hitting you from all fronts and you don't have the spiritual, psychological energy and the resources. So, you know, it makes me think of ignorant people that say, well, what, what does that then have to do with what's happening now? And it has everything to do with what's mm-hmm. happening now, because let's move into talking about the, the residential schools and what that movement was about. And so who wants to talk about that? That happened in Canada and in the U.S. So, you know, Mel, do you want to start us off with that? Sure. Um, So the the idea of residential schools, um, from what I can (laughs) gather, was because they weren't able to specifically target direct communities anymore. There was, I mean, you start beginning to obtain knowledge about what's going on and how you're being targeted and you begin to sort of um, grow and push away from whatever control is being thrown at you. And so this was a way to, again, target the children and remove the children from communities. Um, And this was also before, during, and after reserve systems were put in place. And so we see that we were pushed into pockets of land, some of them that were not even extremely inhabitable, so we couldn't even grow our food. We weren't allowed to own our own farm equipment. At the time, we also weren't allowed to obtain like legal support. Um, all of these things, again, so it's not just like a one-time thing. There's all of these things that are put into place even before residential school started. But the idea was to assimilate the child. And so in the Indian Acted States, to kill the Indian and the man, the purpose of the schools was to kill the Indian and the child, mm-hmm. um, uh, to remove them from their culture, remove them from their communities, assimilate them into the dominant worldview, but then not provide any of those supports and quote unquote benefits that would be a part of settler society. Um, because then when those children, if they survived, when they would try to go back to the home communities, they no longer spoke the language. They no longer knew about ceremony. They no longer could communicate in their own mother tongue like they they didn't know anything and so they were completely different people and then so they kind of had one foot in the door of their community and one foot in the door of settler society but you're facing um sort of internal blame shame and guilt as well as isolation because you can't fit in one side and you can't fit in the other there was no way to sort of balance out walking on both paths and that was the goal Mm -hmm. the goal was either to not care if they died <laughs> because and it's harsh to say but they didn't like we have um, mass graves around residential schools and nearby for that reason because you would have overcrowding in one and instead of bringing them to another school they would just line them up and do what they do what they wanted but you also had such malnourishment that took place especially at the beginning um i don't know if this is the same for the u.s but in canada the stories that are coming out um we know how to ration military nutrients and packets because Mm -hmm. of them testing it on residential school children we know what um what pills like so like Advil, Tylenol, things like that. We know how they work and how they function because they tested it on our children. And we know that the electric chair works. The minimal amount of food that someone can live on. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, There's often stories around um, what they called slop. So oatmeal is basically what it was. And it was just reserved. If it wasn't, if the pot wasn't done in the one day they would just reserve it the next day and add a bit more and so there would be molds there would be bugs there would be things at the bottom of this pot and they just didn't clean it um they forced 
servitude roles on our children. So they didn't teach and educate and provide any type of um, substantial learning because they wanted to keep us in a servitude role again, around control and around ownership, right? Um, and also while this was taking place, there was displacement projects that were going on. It was, we'll give you stipends and we'll give you money allowance so that you can leave the reserve and we'll keep you in the city. But then when that project was done, what money were they left with? They weren't given anything other than that and they were stuck in the city. There was also boarding schools. So we don't talk a lot often about the boarding schools that have taken place. My grandmother actually went to a boarding school instead of a residential school. But that's sort of the gist of it is to purposely remove and dislocate them and create a different identity. This whole removal of the children from their families as an act to basically destroy the culture began back in 1819. And um, it was... First, initially, the Civilian Fund Act, it's called Civilian Fund Act, and this was the attempt, These. this was a series of policies that were meant to assimilate Native people to, to uh, the European mode, and that led to our Indian boarding school era, and that lasted from 1860 all the way to as current as 1978. That was the last Indian boarding school in the United States. And again, that act directly um, created the schools, the um, boarding schools by putting, by through the mindset that native culture and languages were to blame for what was deemed as the, the country's Indian problem. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the native families uh, were coerced by the federal government, just as, as you said, and that they would, um, they would withhold. So when, when these treaties were made and um, the tribes were all forced onto these parcels of land that were, almost inhabitable that were foreign to them they were not used to they promised uh they promised to feed the the uh tribes they promised to clothe them to provide agriculture training as well as tools um and to provide health care so they're kind of like that that great white white father that was going to take care of them mm -hmm. but what they would do is they would hold food and supplies and say, uh, if, and they would come to the homes and say, um, we're gonna take your kids and we're gonna send them to school for their own good. And if you don't, we won't give you the food. In essence, they starved them in order to, to get at the children. Or they would, you know, have them sign false agreements. My my grandfather's brother was sent from Standing Rock out to Carlisle on the East Coast. Uh, and he ran away a number of times and they finally let him come home when he fell off of a train and his leg was cut off. Oh, wow. So, well, And I know that they would also make you give up your, your native name, give oh, you yeah. an English name, make you yeah. give up your clothes, put on English, you know, clothing and yeah. try to kill in all fronts um, your history uh, disconnect you from your family. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. of all everything that, that they had that reminded them of their native life. So their long hair was cut short. Mm -hmm. um, everybody had to look alike. They wore like uh, traditional 
uh, uniform, so everybody was alike. There was no uniqueness. They were um, they were regimented, schedule regimented in a very militaristic style. So there was no ability. And unfortunately, a lot of this was done through our religious organizations, through the Catholic Church and other um, Christian denominations. And you know, it goes back to that, um, as Chris said, the um, doctrine of discovery. Mm -hmm. And um, the missionaries' mission to Christianize the world. Uh, and it's just so hurtful to know that this is what they did in the name of their of Jesus or their religion or or you know their their viewpoint. And I think I think, yeah, that um, you know, the the institutionalized abuse that the the schools um committed against indigenous children you know, which, um, like Mary said, was a was a partnership essentially of the U.S. government and various Christian denominations, um, that that included sexual and physical violence, uh, murder, starvation, strangulation, medical experimentation, like Mel mentioned, electroshock, other kinds of torture, and um, pedophile and sex trafficking rings that were run by clergy, government officials, businessmen, and police all were a part of that. And one of the um, ways that I think about those boarding schools is as, um, uh, you know, the uh, labor and sex trafficking mm -hmm. uh, of indigenous children. Uh, and we see that in that history. And like you were saying, Celia, you know, people are like, well, what does that have to do with it? Um, you know, it, it, it is just a, uh, the technology has changed. Obviously, our culture has changed in, you know, some ways. Um, but it is really a, just a continuation of uh, what began with uh, the colonization of this land and, and the people. And exactly. I think that for people who say, well, I, those, I don't believe those things happen. It's look at any system where you give people total power and control. Look at any system where there is not a place for people to have a voice and you'll see corruption, you'll see abuse, and you'll see exploitation. And we've seen that and documented that uh, among priests. So, I mean, that's a perfect example of someone who is uh, vowed to uphold humanity at all times. But when people don't have a voice, corruption, abuse, exploitation happens. And particularly when it is a God-given right, manifest destiny, that's my God-given right to take everything you have in the name of the Lord. And so yeah. um, I know this is a difficult conversation. I'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation. And because so, you know, it's a group wanna... of people who don't even have a voice yet. Many, many people don't even know this is happening yet. We know a lot about Black Lives Matter and thanks God we, we are learning a lot more about that. This is something that we don't even know enough about yet. So Marissa, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, if, if you're going to say that you can understand why, um, you know, you said some folks say, you know, I don't believe that, or I can't understand why, you know, so many indigenous women are murdered, you know, it's, it's because you don't want to at this point, mm -hmm. I have to, you know, and, and that's harsh, but if you, 
can't understand, it's because you don't want to even know more about it or try and understand. Mm -hmm. Indigenous women in Canada are 12 times more likely to be murdered than any other women in Canada. And femicide is a huge problem all over the world. And all women, yes, are murdered. And we're getting that lately, you know, because we have this campaign uh, going on right now, and we're in our Indigenous segment of it. So we're lifting up the voices of the Indigenous communities here in Toronto. And I'm getting private messages like, well, this happens to all women. And of course it does. And, you know, that, you know, women have experienced violence for centuries, and it is a pandemic. But what we're talking about here is not only the patriarchy and women experiencing violence, but when you talk about missing and murdered Indigenous women, we have to go back to these, you know, very, very old, the doctrine of discovery and residential schools, because all of that trauma experienced by the communities and trying to piece their lives back together, that is part of the reason why missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and the human trafficking survivors and the forced sterilization and things like birth alerts uh, in Canada and, and the overrepresentation of Indigenous kids in the child welfare system. If, you know, I, it would be mindless for me to be an, in an activist working against gender-based violence, because that's what I do, and not talk about violence against Indigenous women. So, I mean, at this point, if you're not recognizing it, it's because you don't want to. And, and I think it's it's very sad that if women would email you and say, well, all women, it's sort of analogous yeah. to, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. People yeah. say, well, all lives matter. Well, exactly. of course, all lives matter. I mean, all lives are demonstrated to have mattered in television, in the media, in healthcare, in all these things. We see a manifestation of lives mattering. But when we talk about Black Lives Matter, we're trying to make a profound statement. And when we talk about, you know, missing and murdered Indigenous women, yes, all women disproportionately uh, experience violence in, in areas of their life. But when we're talking about this population, it's particularly pronounced. And so that's sad that um, some women may not understand that. Does anybody no, have any comments? I think that um, a lot of them were trolls and some of them weren't women. So that explains a lot. So oh, yeah. Okay. I am going to gender that. Um, but, you know, I think that if we're, you know, the sisterhood is really powerful and I and I believe very highly in the sisterhood. It's it's it brings a lot of richness to my work. Mm -hmm. And if we walk together as, you know, it you know, if we're all identifying as women and we're walking together in that and just, you know, raising each other up and lifting each other up, it's, we're that much more powerful. So, you know, I can speak to Mel about things that have happened in my life and she can do the same with me. And that's not to say that, you know, non-Indigenous women, again, don't experience that violence, but, you know, it's just silly at this point. I think, I just still think it's silly if we're not going to recognize who is disproportionately uh, experiencing that violence. Absolutely. And so can if, we talk? If I could just yeah, go ahead. mention that um, when, when I brought uh, the piece of legislation to the Minnesota House of Representatives for, uh, for a hearing after we had created the, the bill and the legislation, and the evening that I presented the bill in the committee, um, we had, you know, our, our uh, 
we call them DFL, uh, Democrat Farmer Labor, but we're the Democrats and the Republicans there. Um, the Republicans were in the majority at the time, uh, and it was very hard to get uh, an initial hearing um, to begin with, but I, I finally was able to, to get that done. But as I presented the bill and gave them the, the little information that I had around this, because there wasn't, you know, like we said, the data and the statistics and the, you know, the the graphs and everything. Um, but I also had a handful of women that had the courage to come forward and share their stories, uh, whether they themselves had been um, victims of violence and were survivors or those that had family members that were brutally murdered and nothing done or went missing and nothing to be heard from again. And while we had this testimony, you could have heard a pin drop in this huge committee hearing room. Um, the audience that was there, the legislators that were there, the staff that were there were absolutely dumbfounded. They had never heard of this before. They had no idea. Those were the comments that I got afterwards. Like, how did we not know about this? Where is this happening? Why is this happening? Um, why, you know, why are we doing something about this? And I mean, there were legislators with tears running down their faces. And at that moment, they pledged support for the legislation to create this task force. And I told them, okay, we get it that you didn't know about this, so you kind of get a little light pass, but now you know about this and it is our obligation to do something about this from this point on. Mm -hmm. And um, in Minnesota, we did eventually pass the, um, the task force legislation to create uh, you know, the study with 100% bipartisan support, both in the House and in the Senate. Wow. With that understanding that now you know, now it's your responsibility, your obligation to address this. So, you know, sometimes you say you don't know what you don't know, so you can't hold people responsible. But in the back of our minds, I think we all knew that things like this was happening, but we just didn't know how to really address it as such. Well, and and State Senator Mary, I mean, that's that is. Critically, that is why it's so important because people say, well, what do you need diversity at the table for? Why do you need to? You, it's just a checking off a box. No, it's not. It's to bring valuable, critical information to better serve the people, all the people. Yeah. So just I just uh, so thankful that you decided to get into the business of politics, which <laughs> you know, is not something you do because you would love to just <laughs> get into all of these, the all the ugliness that happens in politics. But thank God there are women like you that do this type of work. Wow, this is a powerful episode. I'm so glad we're discussing this. I have to admit, um, I learned a lot about what's taking place across the U.S. and Canada in terms of our Indigenous uh, sisters and communities. Yeah, I mean, they gathered the data. They took the time to get the stories, the testimonies, over a thousand pages so that they can validate that this is 
real, you know, and it always reminds me, and I, when I was thinking about this episode, I was thinking, wow, if you want to know anything about the Casey Anthony case, for example, just Google it. You can find out every single thing, probably about what she likes to eat and what she does every day and where she currently lives. Or if you want to know about the Jean Bonnet case, you know, you can find out, you know, every little aspect about that case. And here there are thousands of women who we, in essence, are saying their lives don't matter and there are no marches for them and there there are no stories. I mean, this is an epidemic that's going on. And people say, how is history connected to today? A lot of people say that, well, I wasn't there. I don't have anything to do with your oppression that happened hundreds of years ago. And what does that have to do with what's taking place now? But a lot of those things were set in stone um, years ago. History is very important in terms of how we value people today. Oh, definitely. Like, for instance, the doctrine of discovery that was discussed during this podcast. And and that was a legal premise that governed uh, European conquest of non-Christian countries. Mm -hmm. So this was international law. And that approved these conquests. And if you weren't Christian, then you were at risk of losing uh, your goods, resources, your culture, and even your life. Yeah, like Manifest Destiny, which is I learned in in seventh grade social studies. But I never knew that it really meant that's my God-given right to conquer you and take your land and discover something that you had already been where you had already been living. Right. And some of these doctrines and laws, we gave ourselves permission to change, you know, who you are, your beliefs, your systems and your way of knowing. And to ensure this will happen, I'll come and take your children and I'll put them in boarding schools and residential programs so that they learn to adopt and appreciate and look up to my dominant culture. Right. I'll change your language. I'll teach your children English. Uh, change their manner of dress, cut their hair. You just decimate your culture. Yeah, kill the Indian, save the man. Rape the women and strip the children of their identity. You know, I hope this podcast helps make this epidemic move from being invisible to visible. And I hope it brings to the forefront in our minds what's happening to our indigenous sisters. Um, We asked them actually to develop a track of sessions at our upcoming um, International Human Trafficking and Social Justice Conference because we want to devote a lot more sessions to educating people about what's happening. So we're going to be hearing a lot more about this in the upcoming episodes. So stay tuned for next episode. We're going to dive a little bit deeper into the issue, but also start considering now Um, our conference in September. You can go to traffickingconference.com. Right now, we're accepting abstracts to present at the conference. Um, And that would be awesome. And the conference is awesome. But we really want you to focus in on these sessions that we're going to be offering at the conference that really focus on missing and murdered Indigenous women. Because the more you know, the better you'll be as an advocate. Until next time, the fight continues. Let's not just do something, let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast 
Until then, the fight continues. <laughs>